His name was Clemens Wenzel Fürst von Metternich. Clearly his mother loved him, and he was a Prussian diplomat um, of the Napoleonic era, and his claim to fame is that he coined a phrase that has been adapted untold number of times ever since he put it, because when he said it, France was at the high water mark of its global superiority, its global supremacy, and what von Metternich said in that era was this, when France sneezes, Europe catches a cold. France was so important in that day that if anything ever happened to it, the rest of the world would feel its tremor, its sneeze. Um, I don't need to tell you, because you're probably already counting and you can't wait for it to be over, but 46 days from now, there's this thing called an election happening, and you knew that was coming. And every four years or even every two years, everybody says this is the most momentous election of uh, American history, and that's certainly debatable, and we could certainly feel that, and yet, whether or not that's true, all the eyes of the world are on the United States, surely on November 4th or November 5th or November 3rd, as the case may be. Why? Because when the United States sneezes, the whole world catches a cold. I, I use that sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek kind of aphorism to set up this I ask you rhetorically speaking, what is your mood right now about what awaits us on November 3rd? Uh, it's possible that some of you feel nothing but fear as to what the outcome might be. Um, it's a pretty much a given that several of you might be enraged at what can come out of the mouths of everyone of any political stripe. It's also very highly possible that despite the fear or the rage, it's now so internalized that you're all numb to it and you just as soon disengage from the whole project. And all of those reactions, all of those emotions are entirely explainable and understandable. But they are also telling, maybe, whenever we find ourselves feeling any of those emotions or the absence of emotion to its top. And it's telling in this sense. I believe what it reveals is that there is something that has become hidden to us. Something that has gotten lost in all the noise. Something that has become obscured and consequently something that we have forgotten. And therefore we're in need of a kind of illumination. Nathan Hatch is a, the president of Wake Forest University and he wrote this in an article that's in our sermon resources this week that I encourage you to read when you can. He says this, The media climate in which we live drowns us with outrage stories. We jump into advocacy without fully understanding the best arguments of the other side, and we leap to ridicule their positions and disparage their motives. We compare the best side of our own position with the worst side of the other, often a mere caricature. The result is a powerful undertow that pulls all of us, believers included, into believing that the civic arena is the most important one in which to play. But given what we know from history, we have cause to ask, is it? It's a question worth us all asking ourselves and maybe one another and perhaps more often the closer we get to November 3rd, whether it's fear or outrage or escape, 
They all reveal perhaps the extent to which we may in fact believe that the civic platform is most important, which means we have to ask ourselves again, is it? We're listening to a very ancient book, the book of Daniel, that has a lot to say about mysteries, especially in this chapter. And you might say that the entirety of the chapter is out to tell us one thing. God reveals mysteries. And the question is, what are the mysteries that he reveals in chapter 2? And how do they relate to the mysteries that need to be brought out from out of the darkness into the light for us to reckon with again? I think there are three things. And they all have to do with, one, what appears to be formidable, two, what appears to be impossible, and three, what appears to be diminutive. There's your SAT word for the day. What appears to be formidable, what appears to be, um, what was that second thing? Impossible. And that third thing, what appears to be diminutive. So rather than have you stand, it's a very long passage from Daniel chapter 2. Just listen. Listen carefully. And we'll see what mysteries are out to be revealed, both to them and to us. Our central text for today can be found in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 49. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, or enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man, to, man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of, the, of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found.
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the fairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. The Babylonian Empire, it stretched thousands of miles. It ran for hundreds of years. It succeeded at that, at that uh, juncture in geopolitical history, the Assyrian Empire, which had been the big guy on the block for a long time. It was succeeding that Assyrian Empire by conquering whatever would be in its path, including what were the southern tribes of the divided kingdom of Israel. Judah is conquered by Babylon. The temple is burned to the ground, and it carts off its brain trust, it's cream of the crop, it's Phi Beta Kappa folk, back to Babylon. You heard all about that last week when we considered Daniel chapter 1. And all it was out to do when they brought those exiles or they brought those Israelites into Babylon was to commission them to service, to use their skill, their aptitude and insight in the service of who was then king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is 
the man about town, and Babylon was such that it earned a reputation throughout the entirety of the rest of the biblical canon, where if you spoke of Babylon, that was a metaphor for a large regime that all it could do was oppress. So if you were with us during our season in, in 1 Peter, you hear how Peter wraps up his letter by saying, we, say, we, we send our love from those who are at Babylon, which meant was a code word for talking about the Roman Empire in which there was no love lost. In the book of Revelation, Babylon represents the metaphor of great oppression and power, the principalities and the power that were out to oppress the church. So Babylon earns that reputation, and rightly so. And in that season, it is the most formidable um, nation on the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar is the most formidable king in the planet known at that time. And yet here in our passage, Nebuchadnezzar appears something quite other than formidable. In fact, he appears frail. At first, we hear him being sleepless. He's sleepless in Babylon. Whatever peace he had is disrupted by a dream. He cannot make sense of that dream. It's a consistent dream. It's an inscrutable dream. And it strikes him with no shortage of fear. And as he is in that dream state, he's trying to understand what it means, and nobody can help. And then that sleeplessness turns into desperation. He demands of those in his royal court who have or have demonstrated some sort of ability or aptitude to understand what he says, he, he summons all of his sages, and he demands of them to tell him his dream. But before he asks them to interpret them, he wants them to prove their ability before he asks them to prove their ability to understand the dream. He wants them to tell him what he was saying or what he was thinking in his bed before he asks them to tell them what it all meant. And when I was growing up uh, in our first home in Dallas, there was not far from our house um, a, a little strip shopping center in which there was a little, uh, really small little shop. And on the window was a large neon hand that said, free Palm reading. Know your future. How many times I walked by that place or drove by it that I wanted to get out and walk inside and say to them, if you're really legit, why are you even here? Why, why, didn't, you, why didn't you bet the market because you knew the future? Why, why are you still in this little hovel uh, seeing if people will come in and bite on your neon sign? Why, in fact, I wanted to say to them, tell me why I'm here before I let you tell me what you think my future is. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He doesn't want them just to tell him what his dream means. He first wants to prove their credibility by telling him what he was dreaming altogether. And when they hear that, they, to their credit, know their limits. And so in verse 11, they see something that is not just true, but also rather profound when they said this, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. A little bit of foreshadowing there on their part. A little bit of dramatic irony on their part. They plead with him. They ask him to consider another way, but he says, I'm sorry. It won't do. And he starts out as sleepless, he, he becomes desperate, and then finally he becomes deranged. Because when he knows 
that all they're doing is stalling. He puts every member of his royal court who knows anything about interpreting dreams and he threatens them with execution, including the Fantastic Four, including Daniel and his three friends known by their Babylonian names, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And in that moment, what we see is a leading magnate, a, a potentate of the Middle East, of the ancient Middle East, acting not formidable, but utterly frail. He's showing his frailty. And Daniel's first response is to speak to him with great care and with prudence. And it's all out to tell us this first thing, that what is formidable, what appears to be formidable, is in fact frail. Those who would hear that then and we who would hear it now are meant to reckon with the fact that what seems, what appears to be formidable, is in fact worthy only of the designation of being frail. This is a dynasty that's going to be replaced in time. And the reason I can say to you that Daniel's first point to us is that what appears formidable is in fact frail is this. Every dynasty that you have ever known and ever studied has been replaced. There's not one. Why do we think that anything that might exist now will exist forever? We shouldn't. Nothing has. Every ism that you know, every political ideology, whether it's capitalism or socialism or communism or libertarianism or liberalism or, or conservatism or identitarianism, pick your ism. What's true of every single one of those is that they all have their blind spots. They all have their excesses. They all have the opportunity for someone to act on their precepts to advantage themselves and disadvantage someone else. It's true of every ism. It's true of every system. And therefore, every ideology that you know and every dynasty that you know and every political system that you know is in itself, it reflects a certain frailty about it no matter how formidable or airtight it seems. And that's because every ideology that was ever thought and every system that was ever run was both formulated and enacted by one thing, people. People. Uh, Sir Bernard Crick is a British political theorist, and uh, he was known maybe most often or most famously as saying, politics is ethics done in public. But Inasmuch as he knows about politics and knows how politics has functioned in history, he, he was a, a teacher in the last century, he's candid enough to know and willing enough to concede that this is what's true of every structure, every political structure. He said this, No state has the capacity to ensure that men are happy, but all states have the capacity to ensure that men are unhappy. It's because they're frail. It's because they can't see the whole playing field. It's because most times when they're embraced, they never adapt. And therefore, what appears to be formidable is true both in Daniel's story and in ours, that what appears to be formidable is in fact frail. It can't bear the weight of what perhaps we lay upon it. And the question is, why? Why mention that? Why make that point? Is, is my underlying thesis that we're to jettison all attention to any political ideas. No. The implication is that we hold them all loosely. And that we hold our devotion to those who hold them even more loosely. 
because both are frail. T.S. Eliot, he said this, the church cannot be in any political sense either conservative or liberal or revolutionary. Conservatism is too often conservation of the wrong things, liberalism a relaxation of discipline, and revolution a denial of the permanent things. Because each one of those systems and every one others that you've studied, they all depend on the very people that they're out to help. What appears formidable is in fact frail. When patients run the hospitals, you can imagine why there might be on occasion certain number of errors that have consequences. That's Nebuchadnezzar's behavior. It appears formidable, it's in fact frail, and we're meant to see that. But we're meant to see a second thing too. We're meant to have something revealed to us, a mystery that we probably knew was true and have believed was true, but perhaps in this season we have lost it or let it become obscured in all the noise. Daniel is under threat of execution. He and his free friends and everybody else that's his royal court that's one of Nebuchadnezzar's sages, and he demonstrates a much different demeanor in that season in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. He approaches who is the head executioner of that day and acts, it says, with prudence and, and discretion. He asks the executioner, what is the, what is the emperor's rush? And then what does Daniel do? He calls his buddies and he says, let's have a prayer meeting. And he tells them to pray for God's mercy. Mercy to show them insight into what, in fact, this Nebuchadnezzar has dreamt. And what happens after they pray is that Daniel gets an answer. And Daniel, on the spot, composes almost a song of praise in thanksgiving for what the Lord has revealed. He's not just delighted. He's not just celebratory because now he's going to be able to keep his head if he turns out to be right, but more so because of what it reveals. The second thing, that there is something that in their day would have appeared to be impossible. But what appeared to be impossible will in time be indestructible. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to get that? Daniel understands the dream. He goes to the executioner. He says, usher me in. I've got it. He walks in with the dream, and he explains what it is that Nebuchadnezzar saw while he was sleeping. He, he, pre he produces the idea of this large statue, this large forbidding, foreboding statue, this woo-woo imagery of the future. And the statue represents sort of a chronological history of, of dynasties that would proceed following the dynasty of Babylon. And that statue was uh, a head, a torso, and legs, and feet, and each part of that statue was made of different compositions. And each part of that represented a different dynasty. All sorts of scholars, ever since Daniel was written, have debated which dynasty might each of those parts of that statue represent. Would one be Alexander the Great? Would some be the Medes and the Persians? Would some be Rome? Great debate, worthy of having. There's an answer somewhere. But the most important thing, despite just connecting those dots, what's more important is where the dream ends. The dream imagines a statue representing multiple kingdoms that would follow Babylon. But that end of the dream has an end. And that end is the end of other kingdoms. The end 
of the cycle of kings and of kingdoms, there will be an end. Each kingdom was succeeded by another, but in time there will be a kingdom that succeeds them all and will itself never be succeeded. It will endure. And so you hear there in verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Yahweh, the God Most High, the one who we've heard already twice in chapter 1 and 2 say, gave Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore is not to be thought of as a God who is caught flat-footed. He will see an end to the cycles of kings and kingdoms. And if you're uh, an Israelite in exile in that day, and you're hearing the story, your first thought is, that's impossible. We find ourselves in exile. We have no reason to believe that Babylon will ever falter. And even if it does, it will only be knocked off the block by some other kingdom. But what, what, Israel, is what, what Israel is coming to terms with is this. Far from being absorbed into some other cultural storyline, far from becoming a mere footnote to history, what has appeared to be impossible in time will be indestructible. Why bring that up? Why say that? People whose God is the Lord, I say unto you, in a season of great upheaval, where you are threatened to succumb to all manner of fear or an outrage that unhinges you or to disengage entirely from the political process and just wish that it would all go away and contribute nothing meaningfully to this day, you are lost in the shadows if you are like that, and yet there is a kingdom that is coming that will not end. There is a kingdom that is coming that will not end. And what should that idea produce in you? The, the test of the integrity of that idea is, is really asking yourself this question. If, if you were to imagine yourself in the ashes of the, of the Reichstag um, palace where the German parliament met in the lead-up to World War II, it was, it was uh, set ablaze by someone. They accused the Communist Party of doing it, but it eventually led to the ascendancy of the Nazi Party around 1933. Can you say that there is a kingdom that is coming that will not end. Can you say that with a straight face in the midst of that political tragedy? Or pick any other political tragedy that you choose. Can you say that and be encouraged by that with a straight face in the light of what we know of history and other political tragedies? Can you? It all depends on the implications of what that idea means. Because for, for Daniel to reveal unto us that what, will be, what is impossible will be indestructible it is not to encourage either in Israel or in anybody who calls God the Lord. It is not to encourage uh, a stoicism towards everything in these circumstances. It's not to sort of cut yourself off emotionally and wall yourself off from what you're feeling. It's, it's not to encourage a passivity. It's, it's not to embrace a sort of pie-in-the-sky Mind my own business mentality in which I no longer have any interest in participating in the, in the pursuit of truth and love and justice. That truth 
is not meant to encourage any of those mentalities. On the contrary, what it's meant to, in, what to encourage in us is a redoubling of our efforts in those directions. But with this one caveat, with the understanding that you would resist the temptation to become the very things that you see and you despise. That you would be involved in the work of truth and of love and of justice, but not at the expense of becoming truth-straining, hate-mongering, and justice-denying. Daniel didn't. Israel wouldn't. It sought the welfare of the city to which it had been sent, because in its welfare would be their own welfare. And therefore, to believe in a kingdom that is still to come that will be indestructible is not simply to look up and wait. It is only to hope. And it is to contribute in a way in which even if you fail at your endeavor of truth, love, and justice, there is still a reason for hope. Because that which is still not true now will one day be true and everlastingly true. And that gets us to the third idea that I think is out to be revealed in this passage, which I think has relevance to us. Yes, what, is, what appears to be formidable in fact, is in fact frail. Yes, what appears to be impossible will one day be indestructible. But finally, what appears to be, here's your SAT word, what appears to be diminutive is destined to displace. What appears to be diminutive is destined to displace. Okay, big word, diminutive. What does it mean? It means small. It means nothing. It means no reputation, um, not of any import, not of any significance. And in that day, that's what you thought Israel was. Galadriel, when she looks at Frodo, when he comes to visit Rivendell, she says unto him, even the smallest of persons can change the course of the future. Even you, diminutive hobbit, you may have an everlasting consequence on the way things go. What verse 34 and 35 say speak to the reasons why we can believe that what is impossible will become indestructible. Listen to verse 34 and 35 again. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This inconsequential stone it comes out of nowhere in the, in the imagery of the metaphor and it, and it wipes out the entirety of this statue and it grows into the mountain such that it fills the earth without measure. What was diminutive ends up destroying until it displaces everything that's come before it. Israel is already encouraged in the exile by knowing that there was one like Daniel who had gone to bat for them. But what Daniel is out to say to them is they have an even more reason for encouragement. That what appears to be small and inconsequential, what feels just like a pebble in a stream that no one would ever notice, that pebble accomplishes far more than anything that they might have known. That's why it would be encouraging to those who first heard this. Why, why is it to be encouragement to us at all? Because we have more revelation. 
something else has been revealed to us since the time of this revelation through Daniel. And that something is actually a someone. There was one who came to us who was diminutive in every sense of the word. No reputation, no pedigree, no credentials, no power, no prestige that anyone could take up. And yet he was not of the flesh. He was, if you will, untouched by human hands, just as the stone was in Daniel chapter 2. He was not of the flesh. He was born not of the will of man, but as John 1 says, but was born of God. And this one, by his death, was given a name above every name, such that every name under heaven and on earth shall bow before him, so Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Why would they bow? Why would we bow? Not only or even mainly because he overcame death, but because he acted with a certain way of thinking about power. Tom Holland is a name I've mentioned to you before. His most recent book is called Dominion. He is a historian. He is one who is not quick to call himself a Christian and may not even do so. But he's honest enough to say, as he looks at the historical record and the way in which Western civilization was built, that there's no way of understanding Christianity as having, but, but, as but having a dominion, a kind of dominion over all things in the very fabric of our thinking. And in that book, he recognizes that one like J.R.R. Tolkien, when he writes The Lord of the Rings, in, inevitably has Jesus in the back of his mind when he thinks about the very subplot, the whole plot line of the whole trilogy. Because what happens in that story? There's this ring, this ring of power, and everybody wants it, and they're desperate for it, and they call it their precious, and every time they get it, even when it begins to corrupt them from within, they can't let it go. They acquire power, and they want to hold on to power. And the only way that anyone is ever liberated from its power, and the only way that Middle Earth is ever liberated from its power, is to relinquish their hold on that power. It's the only way they ever can be freed. And what Tom Holland sees in J.R.R. Tolkien is the gospel. A gospel that has come down to us, and sticks with us, and has informed us, and has shaped us in ways that we could scarcely imagine. And so Tom Holland draws that connection where he says this, true strength manifested itself not in the exercise of power, but in the willingness to give it up. It's true of Frodo. It's true of Jesus. And we've seen it in what Daniel is telling us, that that which is diminutive ends up having a destiny to displace all, not because he grabbed power, but because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself a servant, even as the flesh, even unto death. That's the gospel. That story remains, and that story has a hold of us. Beloved, it is that story that reminds us of what First Peter told us earlier this summer, that there was a stone that the builders rejected that became the cornerstone, and it is upon the foundation upon which all else we know. It is that same stone which Jesus says unto Peter, Peter, you are my rock, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have reason to believe that what Daniel anticipated is yet still future for us, because of what we've seen already happen in the one who had nothing, who seemed to be nothing, and who is now filling the earth 
with His grace and with His glory. Friends, are you afraid? Are you outraged? Have you given up? May I just remind you of what what John the Baptist would say and what Jesus would say to us. Don't go by first appearances, but instead rest in what is unseen. Be faithful at your post. Take that which frightens you or, or enrages you to his cross. And then as Daniel was, and as Daniel might be today, engage however so you might in the love of truth and of justice and of mercy, knowing full well that you have no capacity to do that apart from what he's done for you. This is the big reveal. And in that big reveal, everything that's starting to get lost or overshadowed will finally come back into our view. Let's pray. Father, we have probably prayed to you already about the things that plague us, the things that frighten us or incense us or maybe want us to crawl into a cave and not come out. We would ask that instead you would help us to see what we have lost sight of and help us to see of that greater thing that is greater than even the greatest thing we might imagine now. Would you help us then to bless this world, to seek the welfare of the city to which you have sent us, we who are in exile here in a sense, that we might be a blessing as we were intended. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.